Hi, and welcome to the Skift Airline Weekly Lounge. I'm your host, Airline Weekly Editor Madhuni Krishnan. I'm joined here today with Airline Weekly Senior Analyst and co-founder Jay Shabbat. Jay, it's that time of year. It's late December, and you know what that means. Happy holidays. <laughs> well, not just happy holidays. It's the time to look back at the year that was, 2019. Ah, yes. And I just want to remind everyone that uh, if you want more on what we're talking about today, uh, please go to the December 16th issue of Airline Weekly and you'll find it in our feature story. And as always, drop me a line at mu at skiff.com if you have any feedback. So, Jay, happy holidays. Let's talk. Let's talk 2019. Yeah. Happy holidays to you, Madhu. And what were some of the bigger stories that we that shaped the airline industry in this year that was? Well, it's hard to escape talking about the Max first of all. Of course, uh, that's you know just so so dominant in the news, and uh, it's had such a profound effect commercially on airlines. Really, all started in March with the uh, the tragedy of uh, Ethiopian's flight uh, that went down, and right after that, the the plane was immediately grounded, and and it remains grounded, and uh, without really any kind of certainty on when 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 it's going to be flying again. So so a few interesting. Th- uh, consequences of that, commercially speaking, one is is that it actually removed a lot of supply from the uh, the the industry. So you're saying that, of course, it makes sense when you hear it that the grounding of the Max actually had a strange benefit for some airlines. Yeah, in the sense that because there was so much supply removed and there were so many planes that weren't being delivered, that's just a supply demand balance equation. Um, you did have uh, a meaningful increase to unit revenues for a lot, for a lot of airlines for the industry as a whole. And if you were an airline that wasn't exposed to to them, you didn't have any Maxes, um, weren't counting on them then you benefited from that. You know, a carrier like Delta, for example, they kind of downplay the, the notion that they, they benefited. Um, but, but, but clearly, you know, there was capacity gone and capacity that otherwise would have been in there that would have, uh, you know, put pressure on, on yields. So, so you do have that sort of benefit, quote unquote. Um, of course, at the same time, for the many airlines that are Max customers that were really counting on this airplane to both lower their costs and, you know, in some cases they planned on using it for specialized missions, like longer range missions. There's, you know, a carrier like Gulf, for example, or wanted to fly to Florida. Um, the, the hit was very, it was, it's been very, very difficult, both from a cost perspective, an operations perspective. It's been just, just a real nightmare just trying to... Uh, find replacement aircraft and just, just dealing with the whole thing. It affects everything from pilot training to customer service and so on. Well, it's not just the MAX, right? I mean, there are problems with delivering a lot of different aircraft, right? Yeah, that's right. It's, 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 the MAX was uh, obviously the biggest uh, supply disruption in terms of the aircraft market. But remember, too, that the uh, uh, Airbus uh, A321neos also experienced uh, significant delays so many airlines uh, were affected by that as well. And, and in the aggregate, you know, industry capacity was affected by that. And then you had, um, you know, Rolls-Royce engine issues on 787s that, wow. that, that kind of lingered. And, uh, you know, some airlines are still facing some regulatory issues and, 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 and whatnot with, uh, with engines on, on A320neos. And then after all that, you have Boeing coming out and saying that 777X, that new, you know, new big aircraft, wide body aircraft that we were expecting or we were promising to deliver next year is, uh, you know, maybe that's not going to happen after all. Speaking of replacement aircraft, do you think the uh, we're any closer for, to an NMA? 
Well, the NMA is just for uh, for background is uh, the new mid-sized aircraft. Some people, you know, call it the 797. It's essentially a 757, 767 replacement aircraft. Right. Now, that's a plane that if Boeing built it, there would be tremendous demand. There's I don't think any there's any doubt about that. There there are questions, however, whether Boeing has this <laughs> has the appetite or the stomach to to yeah. invest in a new a new program after all the issues they've been having with the Max and. You know, there's a lot of engineering resources that are dedicated in that. They're also obviously, you know, dealing with 777 issues as well. There are other questions about whether the plane could be built at a cost that would be attractive enough. See, one of the things about the the, the NMA, the way it's kind of pitched or, or the ideas for it, it would be a very versatile aircraft. One typical mission that it would perform are, are transatlantic missions. So going from the United States to Europe, uh, missions that today are performed by 757s and 767s. There are a lot of airlines like Delta and United that they don't need an aircraft as expensive as the 787. They don't they don't need the 787's range to do a lot of those routes. So the thinking is, is, you know, if we can get a, a cheaper aircraft that has, you know, less range um, with, you know, the latest engine technology and all that, it will be um, something that would just just be a great fit. So the demand is there. It's just looking less certain that Boeing will follow through. Remember too that Boeing also has to consider the next generation of A3 uh, of 737s. Right. Um, they took the step of just re-engineing mm -hmm. the 737NG, but ultimately, before long, it's going to come time to, you know, have to invest a lot of resources in building an all-new narrowbody. So, what do you think airlines are going to do as these 75s and 76s hit their start to peak in their retirement cycle? Well, some of them are ordering an alternative product that Airbus is marketing called the A321neo XLR, which is uh, very popular. Actually, a lot, a lot of airlines, including including United, has ordered it. That kind of does the same thing. It's it's an aircraft that's uh, can do a lot of transatlantic missions um, without having to invest the heavy capital that a 787 would require or an, or an A350 would require. So actually, since you brought up the XLR, uh, that seems like a good segue into what we saw this year with low-cost long-haul. Can anyone make it work? Low-cost long-haul, and remember, there's some ambiguity about how to actually define that term. Well, yeah. um, there, there are people out there that say Emirates is a low-cost long-haul airline because they do, in fact, have <laughs> relatively right? low okay. cost. Um, so well, let's, I think what you're referring to, Madhu, is uh, the carriers like the AirAsiaxes of the world. Yes. Carriers trying to sort of replicate that traditional Southwest type model on very long, longer haul stage lines. That is exactly what I'm saying. Yeah, about. intercontinental markets. That's always proved very difficult and there are a variety of economic reasons be because of that. Um, that fact didn't change in 2019. <laughs> um, it's really hard to find too many success stories. Uh, Norwegians, you know, their, their whole that was a big part of their business model of yeah. trying to do, you know, long, long haul, uh, low cost, long haul transatlantic service, which, you know, I have to say um, is, is not doing terrible. It's not the worst part of their business, right. but clearly it's you know not not been successful enough to avoid a very distressed situation there at Norwegian. And then we have airlines like AirAsia X. I know IAG has had difficulties with their level uh, unit, which is a low cost, long haul WestJet. We'll see how they're. Uh, you know, 787 service to Europe evolves, but uh, I don't, you know, think it's a smashing success uh, by any means. So it, it is a model that's, that's yeah, never really gained traction. Right. And is that because, um, you know, to make, uh, to make 
long haul, like transatlantic flights really work, you need that business demand, right? You need the front of the aircraft. That, that is a big part of it. Yeah. It's, it's to make a lot of these, um, you know, if you think about a route or just, you know, any typical route from Europe to the U.S., um, a lot of the profits from a route like that. Remember, there's a lot of costs associated, extra costs associated with flying that kind of service. There, you know, the taxes are, are higher. The, the service that's required is, is more expensive. There's, you know, the turnaround times are, are, are longer mm-hmm. on the ground, all, all this. It's some, often the airport costs can be more So what you do kind of need that premium demand up front mm-hmm. to make those, a lot of those routes economical. And it's just harder to do that with, with the low cost model. You know, you will have AirAsiax, for example, realize very early on, like, you know what? We need a, you know, we need a premium cabin on our, on our A330s flying to Australia. But still, it's, uh, you know, once you start getting into that territory, you know, if you're a premium traveler, are you going to fly the, the low-cost carrier? Or are you going to fly, you know, you're on, often on a, you know, an ex- expense account, your company's paying are you going to fly the airline that's going to give you, you know, the much, much posher treatment, the, the loyalty benefits, the airport lounges and all that stuff? It's very difficult, speaking more broadly, for a low cost carrier to compete on the revenue side. You want to compete on the cost side right. if you're a low cost carrier. So once you start, you know, offering these premium services like, oh, yeah, we have flatbed seats, too. It just becomes a lot more difficult. You just don't have AirAsiax is never going to have the benefits that Cathay can provide, right. for example. All right, so this is a good place to, to move on to another trend. Um, Norwegian this year shuttered its uh, Argentine operation and sold it to JetSmart. Latin America is seeing a lot of change, and, uh, and let's talk about that. What have you observed in the, the Latin American market in 2019? There were a lot of big, big and interesting changes in the Latin American market, <laughs> um, aside from a, a lot of macroeconomic distress, uh, currency issues, which, which is not really new in 2019. I mean, some of that developed earlier. But you had, um, in one of the biggest uh, you know, developments and surprises of the year, you had LATAM, which is Latin America's biggest airline, ditched their cooperation, long-time uh, partnership with American, and turned to Delta instead. Hmm. Um, at the same time, you had Avianca go through essentially an out-of-court restructuring. It's almost like a bankruptcy process without the actual bankruptcy. Um, they also, in that process, cut a lot of capacity. Um, in Brazil, you had uh, an airline called Avianca Brazil. After they they disappeared, you had a, a market with four airlines go to three. Hmm. You had uh, further up north in Latin America, you had some developments in Mexico with Interjet, um, a carrier there having a lot of distress. Um, and then back down in, in, in South America, uh, lots of low-cost carrier activity. You mentioned uh, Norwegian um, and JetSmart; those those were those were two. Um, you also have Sky Airline in Chile. You have uh, another group called Viva. There, there's a bit, there was a lot of lot of growth there, and mm-hmm. a lot of uh, some of these carriers that were confined to domestic markets started skipping over, you know, crossing borders. So yeah, Latin America, a lot of a uh, lot going on. Yeah, that certainly is. And you know, when you mentioned Interjet, um, how much of their their troubles stem from their decision to buy the Sequoia Superjets? Yeah, that that was a, a costly mistake for sure. There are probably uh, some of their distress is probably related to issues at their parent company, their their own the family that owns it is, has you know businesses in, mm-hmm. in other industries that that are you know have their own issues and there, there's some cross issues there. Right. Um, and they, they were always, you know, Interjet was an airline that tried to be in the middle, which is always very right. dangerous. 
So Aero Mexico is is clearly you know the business airline, yeah. the airline that that's catering to the business traveler. They offer the premium service, and then you have Viva Aerobus and uh, Volaris, which are what you call low cost, ultra low cost carriers in the you know in the vein of Spirit and mm-hmm. um, Frontier. So so Interjet was kind of like trying to stake out a middle position, yeah. like uh, yeah we're lower cost and yeah a little bit less service, but we're still good service kind of thing. It's always a difficult position to be in. There's not right. too not too many examples of airlines in the middle that wound up you know being successful. Air Berlin is probably the most famous example. They always used to say, "Yeah, we're a hybrid airline. You right. know, we are sort of low cost <laughs> and we're sort of you know premium." And you know you saw what happened to them. Yeah, well, Air Berlin's a good place to move on to Europe. The European airline industry seems to be on this the a similar con- consolidation wave that uh, that we saw in, in the U.S. industry a decade or so ago. Yeah, that, that's a lot. A lot of big moves there. Um, for starters, there there were quite a few airlines who who just disappeared. Um, a lot of them were small, but then you had uh, Thomas Cook, which is uh, you know more of a tour operator, but they had a big fleet of aircraft. Yeah. You know, Germania and Wow Air. There's uh, yeah quite a list. And uh, at the same time, you've had um, you know IAG offered to buy Air Europa, which would be a you know big example of consolidation. It's um, an aircraft. It's an industry, or a sector, a geography that's uh, clearly consolidating. You can really group all of Europe's successful airlines into two buckets. One are, you know, the the, the big three giant airlines, which uh, led by IAG, the most successful. Even Air France. Air France has its troubles, but they're not going away. They're they are profitable, not very, but they are. Lufthansa, you know, whatever. So they're they're doing. They're, they'll be okay. Um, and then the other sort of category of, of success stories in Europe are those ultra low cost carriers, uh, or not even ultra, just low cost carriers. Um, there are really th- three of them. It's it's EasyJet, Wizz Air, and Ryanair. With with Ryanair and Wizz being particularly successful. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you're not one of those three carriers, it's you're in a very difficult position. All right. Yeah. I mean, it's it's interesting to see like sort of see this play out in Europe as it did in. Um in the States. I mean, will we see the same degree of consolidation in Europe or have we, are you, are you saying we already kind of have? Yeah, it's a different sort of consolidation. You know, in, in, in the United States, you, you had basically five or six big mega mergers where mm-hmm. you essentially created, you know, one, one airline in the truest sense of the term. European consolidation tends to be more, uh, you know, we'll buy you, but we'll keep your brand. We'll keep your separate management team and you're so we're, or to get, get some synergies at the top, you know, and back office and finance and things like that. So there's a different kind of merger. That said, consolidation is consolidation. It may never be to the same degree as in the U.S., where, you know, the U.S. is, I don't know, what are they down to, like, nine or ten airlines now? Mm-hmm. It's, um, you may always have more than that, because you'll always have, you know, little niche success stories like Aegean and Greece, and, you know, maybe they may be able to survive. But you certainly, it is certainly trending toward a situation where you have, Three giant carriers, and then your you know successful low cost carriers. Right. Well, it's sort of our final trend that we'll talk about this this um, in this podcast is uh, something near and dear to my heart, uh, and that is um, freight. I, IATA recently, or just earlier this month in December, put out its uh, forecast for 2020 and said, uh, or not ra- rather, it's uh, look back on 2019 and said, uh, you know, it was a great year for. Um, for passenger operations and next year the global industry will be profitable again, but freight is going to decline. So why is that? Yeah, we're in the middle of a trade war. It's <laughs> uh, yeah, it's a lot of countries that de- are dependent on exports are having a real you know tough time right now. 
And so if you look at a uh, some of these you know export dependent economies like Germany and Korea and Taiwan, their their carriers are are really feeling it um, on the cargo side. Uh, Taiwan, the Taiwanese carriers are a good example because they they get you know their China Airlines, mm-hmm. EVA. Air. You're, you're talking about you know twenty thirty percent of the entire revenue base is cargo. Huh. So when you have you know severe distress in that sector, it's it's a, it's a real issue for you know a U.S. carrier that uh, you know like a United that might get I don't know seven to ten percent or something of their of their total revenues in cargo. It's uh, it's not fun to to you know see your revenue decline. Cargo revenues decline by 15, 20%, but, you know, it's more of an afterthought. Right. Okay. And uh, so it's uh, trade wars all over the world, um, not just between the U.S. and China, but, uh, you know, in a- among Asian countries and Europe. And also, I mean, declining global GDP growth predictions must also play a role in the, the softness in cargo, right? For sure. Yeah. I mean, the, to global GDP growth was, was rather weak this year, and that's going to, of course, uh, affect demand for, for exports. The interesting, you know, it's interesting to watch going into 2020. It looks like there are some signals of better trends in the global economy in emerging markets, for example. That said, I mean, China is clearly slowing down. India is clearly slowing down. Conversely, you know, the U.S. economy is still strong and that's uh US is you know the world's biggest importer so that's going to drive cargo demand at the end of the day you know as long as people Americans are buying iPhones and <laughs> a lot of that stuff comes from Asia so there uh there's hope for 2020 all right and well you know let the I lied when I said it was the final question we can't uh we can't let this end without talking about um the airlines we said goodbye to this year there were many high profile you, you referred to some of them wow um Thomas Cook, uh, Avianca Brazil, but uh, there there were others like Jet Airways and that that have seriously affected um, the markets they operated in. Do you see the great avionic plague continuing into 2020? Could because there are still a lot of airlines surviving on a thread. Uh, we mentioned Interjet, we mentioned Norwegian, a few others. I, I mentioned in Europe how you can sort of categorize airlines. Uh, you, could, you could put successful airlines into two buckets. You can sort of do that for the world too. You know, if you're a big airline, a big global airline in a big economy, you're probably doing okay. That's even true, you know, Air China is not gonna go out of business. Japan Airlines is doing fine. And then you have, you know, a smattering of successful low cost airlines all, all around the world. Uh, but if you're not in one of those two categories, there are exceptions, but there's, you know, there's a lot of pressures on you. There are exchange rate pressures. We've talked about, you know, macroeconomic softness. There's competitive pressures. There's, you know, who knows what's going to happen in fuel. And I guess we, we can end by mentioning, you know, one of the biggest biggest trends of, you know, any year you're looking at the airline <laughs> industry, always uh, critical to focus on fuel. And it just so happened that fuel prices in 2019 are relatively moderate, Um Unfortunately, for some carriers, they didn't they weren't able to take full advantage because of currency issues or bad hedging. But that clearly, you know, at the end of the day, um, when you look back at 2019, the fact that fuel prices were were not were not so high um, was, you know, very, very important tailwind. All right. Well, Jay, thanks a lot for for joining the Airline Weekly Lounge. Thank you, Madhu, and happy holidays. Happy holidays. And once again, to our listeners, if you have any feedback on anything you heard or on anything at all, please drop me a line at mu at skiff.com. Thank you and goodbye.